Welcome to Stanford University Women in Data Science podcast. We interview women from across the field to hear their perspectives on the past, the present, and the future of data science. Welcome to the show. just so delighted today to have Natalie Harris with us on the Women in Data Science podcast. We met when she was part of the career panel at the Women in Data Science Conference 2019, just this last March in Stanford, and it was just wonderful to have her on this panel. And I'm excited about talking to her a little bit more now. Natalie is a sought-after leader on ethical and responsible use of data. She's had an illustrious career with 16 years at the National Security Agency, and she also worked with the Obama administration. She co-founded Hive, which is a data trust platform, and she currently serves as the head of strategic initiatives of Hive. While working with the Obama administration, Natalie founded the Data Cabinet, which is a federal data science community of practice with over 200 active members across more than 40 federal agencies. She has a master's in public administration from George Washington and two bachelor's degrees in computer science and one in sociology from the University of Maryland, Eastern Shore. Natalie, welcome to the WITS podcast. So delighted to speak to you again. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. One of the wonderful things you said in the career panel, I remember, is that when you were asked how you ended up in data science, you said, well, you, you thought that data science found you. Yes. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit more about this. And we hear this very often, actually, from people that they're not purposely looking for a data science career, but they just sort of happen on it. How did that, how did that happen for you? So when I was in my undergrad program, I was obtaining a degree in sociology, obtaining a degree in computer science, mainly because I was interested in the intersection of technology and society recognizing that in order for government to deliver better services, they needed more innovation and technology and tools to be able to do it. The role of data never really came into play for me until I got to national security agencies. So within three months of me working at NSA is when September 11th happened. And everything we uncovered about what happened with September 11th really led me down this path of understanding that even with the greatest technology, If we don't have strong data collection and data use practices, we're not going to have the impact on society that we're striving to have. So this really what led me down this path of really figuring out, well, how do we use data effectively to answer hard problems? And then as we started to see data used more and more in society, as my career moved beyond NSA to Capitol Hill and then to the White House, I saw more and more that while we collected troves of data, we didn't really have strong frameworks and governance in place to really dictate what it looked like to protect people in a data-driven world. And so that's really how I kind of got down this path of of really centered and focused around the responsible use of data. We hear a lot, of course, about responsible use. And, you know, I'm here in Silicon Valley where a lot of people start talking now about data ethics. It's a little bit late, maybe, sometimes, I think, <laughs> to the game. And obviously, you you know, and sometimes you wonder, well, they're talking about data ethics now because they're forced to. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
But you have such an interesting insight in this because of your sociology background as well. So I talk to more people who are wondering if a degree in the humanities, maybe combined with uh, some knowledge of computer science, is a useful degree. And I can hear you say already, oh, absolutely. So tell us a bit more how sociology helps you. So the thrust of everything I say around data ethics and responsible use of data is about building trust. So you could have the best products out there, but if people don't trust you, then they're not going to trust you to use their data. And if they don't understand what you're doing with the data, then they're not going to trust you to use the data. And then innovation stops. So how do we get to a point where when we're talking about responsible use and we're talking about ethics, we're also remembering that this data represents people. It is people and their lives and the impacts and the unintended consequences of what we do affect individuals and usually our most vulnerable populations. So understanding sociology and understanding societal norms and, and human behavior and how data can be used both to misinterpret or to introduce bias into decision making has proven imperative especially in the world of social good and and delivering social services. You have to understand the holistic individual. No, I totally get that. So tell me from your perspective, how well or how badly are we doing right now? (laughs) I think think we're in our toddler phase. So I have a five-year-old who's turning six. And she, yeah. you know, and she's, I've watched her learn to walk and talk and she's potty trained and she runs around and she can do all of these cool things. And every time she learns something, she treats it like she's the first person to have learned and understood this. And so I feel like that's where we are with data ethics and a lot of the data science practices is that every time we realize something that data can do or something that we can do to better utilize data it's almost as if we're treating it as if it's a new thing. When responsible use of data and ethics has been around as long as we've been doing studies on humans. I mean, social research has been looking at this and putting things out like the Belmont Report and the Moses Report to define how do you understand people and society and be able to conduct research and develop tools and technologies to support them. So it's not new under the sun. It's really how do we take those lessons from before and apply them to this new world? I am actually amazed that you're saying that we're already walking <laughs> in, this, in this area. So maybe you know, Sometimes when I look at it, I think, my goodness, we haven't even learned how to keep our heads straight. So I think, I think in the government, as much flack as it gets, The notion of protecting individual privacy has been something that's been at the forefront of everything the government does because it's built into our laws and into our governance structures. We have to comply with the Privacy Act. Laws exist to protect individuals from government. So we already have that framework and that mentality. I think the private sector is in its infancy and the nonprofit foundation sector, the civil sector, man, they don't even know what they've got ahead of them yet. So I think it really depends on the environment. And what we're seeing now in a lot of the tension is private sector realizing that they can't, they can't buy their way out of it. You can't put innovation above people's rights anymore. 
And that's a whole new culture shift for the way that we teach and train and evolve our technologists. It's so fascinating, this, huh? because on the one hand, you, you're right. Of course, we've been using data for a long time and the government has done has done that. And they're primarily to serve the people. And there's always been a certain amount of trust. You know, we give a lot of data to the government. We have to. Mm-hmm. And people, 20 years ago, people never really worried about that. But now we're voluntarily giving so much of our data to private companies. Mm-hmm. And of course, we realized at some point that I went through that shock stage where I realized, oh my goodness, I've given tremendous amount of information about myself, my habits, my desires, my wishes to private companies that are, of course, going to use this now to to try to make some money off me. And there's a tremendous amount of fear there. And of course, these companies are primarily not driven by creating that public trust. They're driven by profit. And so it's an incredibly interesting time. And it makes you wonder how much you can regulate companies like that. You know, we've left these private companies alone for a long time. Mm -hmm. And now I think we're we're reaching, but tell me if I'm wrong, we're reaching this stage where we have to start thinking about regulations. Or do you think there is another way forward here? I think think the, the tension that we're starting to feel is that I don't know if people trusted government. I think there's large populations of our of our society that always had a mistrust of government. But I would say when you were giving your data over, it was for a very specific reason back in the day. So you would give information so that you could get a student loan so that you can go to school. Or you would give your information so that you could get some form of social service. I think what has happened over the years and the tension that we're starting to feel and realize even both within the government and in private sector is that data has been used to intrude in our lives. And so things are happening based upon data that nobody communicated to the public was actually happening. So even with the advent and the increase of Google using data for marketing and ads and targeted ads, and Facebook using data to understand who else you may know out there in the in, in the Internet. It, it's become this intertwining of data and people so that we have to put some form of framing around its interactions. And it's really the same things that created the impetus for the social laws that came out in the 70s to protect minority populations. It's the reason why we have an EEOC. It's the reason why these laws are put in place is to be able to create equity in our society. And so if you take that equity lens and apply it to how private sector and government are using data, it's really to protect people and ensure that we continue to have an equity lens in our delivery of services to the public. We need laws in place. I'm not necessarily for tons of regulation, But I am for things to put in place to ensure that we continue to improve our ability to equitably deliver social services. Yeah. So what would you, if you were the czar of this in the United (laughs) States or in the world, what would you suggest we do with companies like Facebook and and other companies who've gotten under fire because of privacy issues, because of ethics or maybe violation of what we consider ethical standards. 
you know, one of the problems, of course, with this, I would think, or challenges is that do we have a shared vision of what ethical practices no. mean? Can we define it? And that's no. And I think that's the biggest problem. And so that's why whenever I hear about things happening where we're starting to say we need to put privacy laws in place, privacy things must happen. In my mind, I'm going, we don't know what right looks like in this space. So I don't know that we want to go about putting laws and regulations, broad scoping. I don't know that we want to put broad impact laws in place to govern responsible use of data when we're still trying to define that vision. I think things happening at the state level are really interesting. I think we need to put some work into defining what right looks like for us. And I think at a minimum, we can put protection, we can put laws in place that define standards and expectations. So we can start to put things in place that say, when you use data, you will make sure that you have true informed consent. But I don't think we can govern how people do it. Not yet. Do you think companies are open to that now? What is the impetus for them to to do this? I mean, one of the things of this public backlash from time to time, you know, when people find out that there have been leaks or they somehow feel that their own personal data has been compromised. Do you think that's enough to to sort of get these companies to really move in, in this direction? I think they have to, to a certain degree. Do I think that all of the large companies out there have grown this all of a sudden moral compass that says, oh, we must. No, I don't. And I don't know that the, the public backlash that happens has driven that either, especially with larger companies. The backlash is harmful. It's bad press. But rarely do people leave. Like how many people are actually leaving Facebook or actually leaving Twitter and social media despite knowing all of the things that are happening in those spaces and that the leadership in most of these companies haven't put strong practices in place. They've hired people and talked about it, but we haven't actually seen a lot of change in the way that they move and operate, quite honestly. So it doesn't hurt their pocketbook, right? So if there's no real incentives other than PR to be an ethical company, then it's always just going to be a surface gesture. What I've spoken to others about is how do we change business practices? How do we change expectations of companies so that they're not only incentivized to be ethical and responsible, ingrained in their business models and in their revenue streams, but they're also penalized when they violate so that's accountability, right? I think the I think that the next step for us as a country is that we start to figure out what accountability looks like in this space. And then how do we hold people accountable? And not just by saying you have to create a code of ethics, which is something I'm a huge proponent of as a first step. But it's not the only step. It's just a way to start to create a shared vision. The WIT podcast series is produced by the Global WITS team at Stanford. We are in the Stanford Institute for Computational and Mathematical Engineering. This podcast is made possible thanks to our sponsors, Amazon Web Services, Intuit, Walmart Labs, Wells Fargo, and Western Digital. Yeah, I love that about your work, you know, that you're advocating this data science code of mm -hmm. ethics. We've had similar discussions here. It's very 
tricky thing to write. <laughs> and it's not as easy, I think, as the Hippocratic Oath that medical doctors yeah. take. But I think it is a, it's a wonderful way to start this conversation huh, and to make people aware that they have to think about it. So tell me more about where that stands, that advocacy around this code of ethics. Sure. Are you seeing movement? Um, I'm seeing some movement. What the data science code of ethics effort was bringing together a group of global data practitioners to start to create a shared vision around what sharing data for social good looks like. So what's a code of ethics that we can use to guide our behaviors and then start to develop best practices around? And we did that. We did that in a transparent fashion and that community is still thriving. It's now called the Global Data Ethics Project under Data for Democracy. And it's a vibrant community that's still talking and working and creating things today. What I've also seen are companies take this code of ethics and create their own based on it. So take the principles of the code of ethics that say, that talk about informed consent, talk about transparency and fairness and diversity and all of these principles, and then make it really meaningful and specific to their company, and then publicize the practices that they're putting in place to align with those principles. That to me is huge. That's amazing. At Bright Hive, we've taken that code of ethics and ingrained it into our company by creating our own design checklist, our own product design checklist. And we also have incorporated a set of ethical principles that every customer we have has to abide by in their use of the data that we've now made accessible to them through their governance. Right. So it's what I'm most interested in is seeing how companies are now taking something like this very open and very public code of ethics and turning it into their own thing. Because that's how you start to create that shared vision and start to develop those best practices. You know, I almost wonder as if you could create, or maybe you're doing that with Bright Hive, um, sort of a, a seal of approval on ethics. That, like uh, sometimes we say, this is a green company. You know, they're they've been approved somehow because they're really focusing on sustainability. Do you maybe see these sort of seals of approval being given to companies so that consumers can know, hey, this has been looked at. This company is more maybe trustworthy than yeah, other companies. Absolutely. So I. I've actually sat in discussions with other people and other groups that are looking to create a lead standard like certification for the data ethics community. So what does it look like to create this seal of approval that's voluntary? So it's not something that we're creating that then says you can only use data if you have this certification, but it is something that allows an organization to be able to give a stamp of approval to a company. So very similar to like what B Corp does for um, what B-Lab does to issue B Corp certification and audits and very similar to what the lead certification is. Companies don't have to do it, but they do it because it has meaning to say that this building has been built to lead standards. So how do we create those standards in the data science community so we can say this company has strong practices in place and standards in place that you can be confident that they are using your data ethically and responsibly? I think I would love it. You know, earlier you were talking about what makes people turn away from a company so that the pocketbook of the company yeah. hurts, right? But that's but that's way way to influence these companies. And I'm thinking, you know, I still use Facebook. I use Twitter to some extent. I use Google products a lot and Apple products and so on. And I, I certainly am not shy using personal information online. 
are you heavily involved with that too? Or because you, you're so close to this, you say, I will never use Facebook, for example, or I will never do online shopping. Or have you also bought into it? Oh, I use all of it. I'm on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook as heavy as others are, but because my family's dispersed, it's the one place that I can connect with and talk to and share pictures of my daughter. My family, do I put personal stuff out there? Not really, but it's mostly just like pictures of my daughter. I have an Instagram account. I don't really share much information about it on it. I went to Egypt, so I posted pictures from my Egypt trip on it. I use Twitter purely for publicizing and business purposes. So I, I use it, but I'm limited in what I use. And very rarely do I share a ton of personal information out on those things, but I do use them. Online shopping every day, all day. I have my groceries delivered. I order from Amazon every day, all day. So yeah, I'm definitely a heavy online user. <laughs> I also do it with full awareness that I'm giving up certain protections in doing so. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing. I mean, that's that's what I figure out too. I and mean, when I talk to to friends who say, I would, you know, I'm really worried about it. I'm scared. I may lose privacy. I may be taken advantage of, like somebody will steal my identity. I had that happen to me and it took me 10 hours to sort it out. But it has saved me hundreds of hours to be able to shop mm -hmm. online. So, you know, I always look at this and said, yes, there is a risk, but at the same time, the benefits absolutely outweigh this. You know, sometimes I wonder, and I wanted to ask you about this, this fear of losing their privacy or the right mm -hmm. to privacy also makes people really hesitant sometimes about sharing mm -hmm. health data, right? And that's one of those areas where I think, wow, if we, if we were not so scared of sharing the, those data, we could do so much more with personalized healthcare, for example, because we just have so many more data mm -hmm. to train on. And particularly, you know, data from groups that are now severely underrepresented in the databases that have mm -hmm. been built in healthcare. So what, what is your thought on that? I mean, do you advocate people to just go ahead and do it? Do you worry about, for example, health data more than, than other types of data? A, I think that there's a relationship that needs to be built. And so do I support people sharing their data? Absolutely. But I think that there, there's this gap in understanding what sharing data means. So there's two things that I think have to happen if we're going to build this relationship where an individual allows their data to be used and a company is able to use that data. One side has to trust that what you're doing with that data is something they're okay with. You're going to do things that benefit them So that's a trust, right? So there has to be a foundation of trust in that relationship of giving data, receiving data. On the other side, the company has to be able to prove that they're being responsible with the use of the data. So it's not just one thing to say, I promise that I won't leak your information. Or I promise I won't use your data in nefarious ways. But they also need to be able to demonstrate that I will protect your data and I will protect your privacy. And I don't think that those two things have been done fully. And that's why we continue to struggle with this. So when an individual says, I want to protect my privacy, I think there's a whole nother layer to that than just don't breach my data. It's I don't trust what you're doing. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't understand. So therefore I won't. And so until people know and understand what is happening with their data 
And until companies can thoughtfully express what they're doing with data in a very transparent fashion, we will continue to have this tension. I feel change are coming. I feel that a lot of the new like up and coming companies, like that this new world that's happening is recognizing that every company is a data company in some form or fashion. And so early in their company and early in the way that they're growing and developing and the cultures that they're building, the startup world, they're thinking from this lens. So the individuals coming out of school, the new hires that are coming into the sector, they're all recognizing the importance of ethics and privacy and responsibility. And so I do see a change coming. I think that it's going to be a shift. I don't think that it's going to be the people that are in place now that are going to make the change. I think it's going to be that next generation of leaders that are going to be able to say, this is what I expect. And they'd have grown up in a world where privacy means something very different from the current generation. Do you see the U.S. take a lead on this? I mean, I'm European and there's lots of Europeans who say, you know, it's Europe that's moving way faster than the U.S. And and then people, of course, are worried about, in this respect, uh, China becoming a really big technology lead in the not too distant future with a very different moral perhaps, framework and culture. Yeah, how do you see I think every, this from, on at one point scale? everybody was saying Estonia was ahead of the game. Every government is so different. So because the UK put out GDPR, they are now ahead of the game. But GDPR is something that is very specific to the governance and the the bureaucratic structure of the UK and of Europe. So it works there, but it wouldn't necessarily work here in the US. I don't think it's a question of who's ahead of the game, I think it's a question of who's doing anything. And so UK is doing things to actively use their data in responsible and thoughtful fashions to drive change. The US is trying at the state level. I think it's far more innovative than people give credit for. And it just hasn't fed up into the federal level yet. I think China is gonna make some big moves over the next year, and they already have started to, so is India. Once again, very different government structures. New Zealand and Australia are doing huge things in the data ethics and privacy and data sharing space. All very different things, all very different governments. We have some structural policy things that we need to fix before we can start to make moves like other countries are. Thanks so much for uh, putting this all in perspective. I think that would be very helpful for people. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about yourself too, because you are working in a field that is evolving so rapidly for your, your company and what you've done before. You have to be on top of the latest developments. And, you know, you're very passionate. We can all hear that in, in your voice. And I've seen it on the panel. Where does this passion come from in you? People have the power to make the changes necessary in society. And we have this innate desire to. And I believe that data has the ability to enable us to transform society and people's lives. That's my passion, right? So I believe that people innately want to do good. I'm an optimist in many respects. And I believe that when given the right information, and the right opportunities, they can drive change. So I work to get data into the right hands, into the hands of the right people at the right time 
to allow for those opportunities and that change to happen. It's been too long of us trying to make informed decisions without enough information or without using the information we have on hand to do it. And it hurts people in the end. Technology and innovation actually has the ability to help us do it right. You know, if you think about your daughter growing up now and 14 years <laughs> from now, she's off to college. <laughs> but what is your fondest hope that you have for your oh, area of gosh. expertise at um, that time? What I will say is from where I sit, there's this transformation happening with the role of technology, with the relationship between technology and people. For so long, technology has been this very passive thing in our lives. And now with AI and machine learning and all of these uses of data and technology, there's this tension around what technology can do and what humans should do. I want to get to this place. And what I hope to see is that when it's time for my daughter to make change, we've gotten a better understanding of the role of technology in our lives. Not just what can it do, but what should it do? And with that, she can focus on the next order of things. Because some of these become distractions, right? We're focusing on, are robots going to take over? Instead of focusing on how do we make sure, how do we reduce the homelessness rate? Or how do we make sure that people are actually attaining skills that will meet the needs of the future workforce? So it's, it, it, that's what I want to see. I want to see a world where the relationship between technology and humans makes sense and is beneficial. Yeah, and thank you so much, Natalie, for your contributions to this mm -hmm. and your passion and energy and all the work that you've been doing and your creativity. I'm, you know, hopeful in this area when we have people like you working on it. <laughs> and, and also, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to hear your views. And with that, we conclude this episode of the Women in Data Science podcast. To find out more about this podcast or other Women in Data Science initiatives at Stanford, visit our website at witsconferent.org. That is WIDSconference.org. We thank you for listening and we invite you to subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts.